0: Welcome class. This is our, our distinguished guest. Here is Vasu Kulkarni, a managing partner at Courtside VC. We're going to get into a lot with him and some things that I have right about him, a lot of things I have wrong about him. Yeah, he's a great he's a great guy, but this is financing new media ventures at Gabelli School of Business. Of course, I'm your professor, Athul Pashar, and we are going to have, you're in for a treat. This gentleman is great. He's has uh, been great to me. He doesn't even know it. Uh I, I, And anytime I've asked him for a favor, he's always come through and I'll weave a lot of that into our conversation. We have, I want to quickly give some shout outs. I asked, I asked the entire class uh, to give me some questions for Vasu and some of you responded. So the rest of you are failing this damn thing. Uh, But no, I'm kidding. Rebecca, Harry, Ryan, Emily, Max, and Belitza. Um, there are 30 of you who did not respond, but you know what? Expect that F in the mailbox. I'm just kidding. Um, we're going to have fun with this today, right? We're going to get into things like due diligence, as we've discussed in class, how to evaluate startups. Vasu has a deep love for sports, especially the NBA. We'll get into all of that. I've told you some things about, you know, he even played, I think he played college level at Penn, right? Boom. Right. Um, and was the sixth man on the Cavaliers for a while. I'm kidding. We'll, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll talk about general VC metrics. Um, how your group your group applies uh, a lot of these things to your investment thesis, and maybe it's kind of slightly changed over the time. It looks like, and blockchain, NFT, metaverse. We're going to get into some of these things as well. And he, you know, their group was early on Courtside Ventures in the Athletic, StockX, and companies like this. You're all very familiar with the Athletic. We just covered in class, ironically, two three weeks ago, and we'll get onto an early investors perspective on that company. I was just telling you from the retail side. Uh, trends in VC generally in sports and you know, being part of courtside ventures, courtside ventures, as we've mentioned, you already knew this in class. Dan Gilper, who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, he I think he made Quicken Loans as his baby, kind of owns half of Detroit at this point. He, you know, he was one of the first checks into courtside ventures, and it is his. Can I say it's his fun that you're a. Um, managing the fund is that can we say that or no is that not proper
1: no he's just an lp just like anyone else an would LP. Be an lp he was a major lp
0: in the first one is this the second one now? we're on to our third fund right now third fund okay and is he he's heavily involved he continues to be involved in every fund yeah okay and i want to i want to get you at some point when the cleveland cavaliers were playing the warriors <sighs> in the finals numerous times you were in the cavaliers skybox wearing a curry jersey it's a rumor man i don't know we'll talk about it but <laughs> well, give us a quick give us a quick
1: like one or two minutes on
0: your background and anything that's fascinating um well
1: i i'd say that you know hopefully, hopefully when they bury me my tombstone will read the here, here lays a man who loved the game of basketball more than anyone else right that's that that is who i am that i'd say that that the game of basketball has defined me and everything that i've done in my life and so first and foremost i'd say I. I definitely identify as a, as a ball player and a ball lover uh, over anything else. Um, other than that, uh, because of my love for basketball, went to Penn, um, was a walk on, played on the JV squad my senior year, started a, a sports analytics company called Crossover out of my dorm room that was meant to help the Penn basketball team get better uh, with their use of data. Luckily that it turned out there was more than just one team that needed that product. There were, there were you know, tens of thousands of teams around the country and even around the world that needed it. So we, uh, I moved to New York, set up shop and Crossover became a you know, 120 person company. We had about 10,000 customers around the world that used our product right down from sort of fifth grade basketball in some cases, but primarily high schools, junior colleges, colleges, and then eventually towards the end, even some NBA programs. We're using our product, um, sold that business to private equity in 2017, uh, and then moved over to the venture side. Luckily, Dan Gilbert, as you mentioned, he, he was, uh, he was the biggest investor in my company and he was, uh, the first check into court side as well. Um, so we raised a, a first fund, second fund a couple of years later, and now we're investing out of our third fund. Uh, so things have gone pretty well. Originally, the, the thesis was, can we build a venture fund? focused on sports, fitness, and, uh, and eSports, which was the flavor of the week back in, in 2016, 2017. Um, I'd say our thesis has changed uh, somewhat since then. I, I would not call it, So everyone calls us a sports tech fund. If you look at our portfolio, I'd say there's one sports tech deal in the entire fund. Um, but we, we look at sort of the intersection of sports, media, fitness, wellness, human performance, and now gaming and collectibles as well. And so there's a lot of overlap. If you look at a company like NBA Top Shot, Dapper Labs, for example, you know, would you call that a sports company? Would you call that a blockchain collectibles company? Or would you call that a gaming company? And my argument is it's all three of those things combined. Sure. And, you know, th- those are sort of the places where we're spending more of our time. So today my my time has gone from spending everything on sports to, far more collectibles, both physical and digital. So a lot of NFT companies, but also physical collectibles are having a resurgence and and they've reached their peak at this point. So everything from trading cards, sports memorabilia, watches, handbags, sneakers that we we were lucky enough to be the first money in stock X and saw sneakers go from uh, something, a utility that you wore on your feet to an asset class and a collectible. And we're seeing that happen across multiple categories now. So I spend all of my time on collectibles My partner, Deepin, spends most of his time on human performance, fitness, and wellness, uh, as well as um, real money gaming. So things like uh, daily fantasy and sports betting, both domestically and internationally. And then our third partner, Kai, is a gaming expert. So he spends all of his time on gaming. So in gaming, we're looking at everything from um, uh, publishers and and studios that are building new games, uh, both mobile, console, PC... Uh, To now, blockchain gaming and how the NFT world is intersecting with gaming. Um, We look at core tech and tools, things that 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 game developers can use to help build them better games and faster and cheaper games. Um, And finally, social and community. We we believe that gaming is essentially at its at its ethos a a a social network, right? It's really it brings people together. It connects people from around the world who are doing something uh, together that they that they're passionate about, and so. Uh, we we look at gaming very much as a, a way to connect people. Um, so we look at companies uh, that are trying to do that as well. And you know, that's basically where we're at. It's been, a, it's been a hell of a ride. I've been out of school for 13 years. I spent eight of them running a company and now five of them running a fund. And I'm just lucky that I get to do what I love every day.
0: I love it. Let's not gloss over what you did with Crossover Analytics. Jump into that for a minute. Give us, give us two minutes. So he Crossover analytics. Can I, okay. You tell me if this analogy is wrong. Billy Bean, what he did for baseball with Moneyball. Can you say you did that for basketball with crossover? Yeah, analytics?
1: sort of, but, 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 but definitely productize it, right? I mean, he was doing it for one team very specifically uh, and, and going deep, deep, deep into how do I optimize my lineup? How do I find players who are diamonds in the rough, bring them in lower salary cap and then get the most out of those guys. Like he was doing all of that, right? For us, you can't build a business being the consultant for one team. We had to be able to productize what he did for his team but do it across tens of thousands of teams. And so a lot of that was software, a lot of it was using outsourced labor that could look at games, tag what was going on at every moment in a game. We would gather all of that data and then and then turn it into useful statistics and analytics and searchable video. And so I would not say that we ever went to the level of a Billy Bean because we just we couldn't go that deep with any single team. Um, But there were some NBA teams that came to us and asked us to do very specific projects for them around gathering data across the NCAA, the G League, and then all NBA games so that they could make better decisions on uh, come trade deadline, who are they going to trade for, um, also how to utilize their own players. There were some really interesting projects that we did. I'm sure The level to which Billy went was another level, but for us, it was how do we sort of create the the lowest common denominator that would provide value right from high school coaches all the way up to the pros, right? Because your high school coach is not going to understand the level of data that a pro team stats group is going to be able to, to utilize. And so we really had to create something that spoke to your average Joe high school coach, who's a basketball mind, but not a data mind. And so, you know, our job was really, how do you bridge the data that we're collecting and the analytics that we're creating into verbiage that a high school basketball coach can understand and not have to like spend an hour of his time pouring over the data to try to figure out what it all means.
0: It's fascinating. And you still, so I, and I incorrectly told you class, I assumed uh, incorrectly, maybe potentially you'll, you'll clear this up for me. You started with college, you had uh, high school came on board and the NBA teams, um, I thought the, the Miami Heat team, the, that huge super team they had down there, was utilizing your crossover analytics. And it could have been. We don't know, right? But I thought uh, directly, <laughs> I assumed it was directly because your Dan Gilbert connection, and then obviously with LeBron and all of that. So, that's uh, potentially true. They,
1: they, but pretend, they, they definitely used, they were a customer of ours. They bought data from us. What they did with that data, I have no clue. Uh, Whether it changed the way they played, I don't know whether they simply used it for draft purposes, uh, which is the more likely outcome. I would imagine that they definitely did. Uh, But how they changed their on-court gaming uh, strategy, I I have no idea. So, you know, I'm I'm happy to take credit for uh, a couple of their championships uh, if you'd like um, but otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, they, they've got a smart group down there. Coach Spo started in the film room, and he's always been a data and analytics guy. So I think that was a big part of it.
0: And here's my first LeBron jab of the day. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm horrible at this. Vasco I have done this for a while. <laughs> so, the, that if I was to use K Crossover Analytics, I would have said, hey, in the first couple of years, pass it to Dwayne Wade to take the last shot. I'm kidding. That's horrible. Uh, now he can take a last shot, you know, unless it's going to Carmelo in the corner and he misses. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm horrible. I know. Because look at this. This is my guy back here. <laughs> um, you, and then you, where else should we take this? Okay you're still I want the class to know I know you just started playing basketball weekly on Wednesday nights, so that's why you can't join us in person is this, this is correct right which league is this by the way
1: uh, it's my equinox I mean I, I play pickup three to four days a week but the the Wednesday night is an actual refereed league and um, that finally started up after two years of uh, hiatus thanks to covid we were we were six and0 going into the pandemic and the very last game uh, off that a pandemic was the night that Rudy Gobert tested positive. And so we played our last game. We went six and O to start the season and then every the, the entire world shut down. And so now we've, unfortunately they're not, they're not uh, recognizing our six and O start. We had to start a brand new season oh, no. this year. Uh, and we are, uh, we are five and one now to, okay. to start
0: the season. That's a, that's a blip. That's not, that's not fair. I'm kidding, <laughs> but that's awesome. Okay. Love it. So let me, let's delve deep and kind of get into this VC spectrum here. We'll start off generalist, maybe general ideas, and then we'll get into more of the sports arena a little bit because you and I both have a fondness for that. And I want this to, I know you you're, become a little bit more uh, versatile in your investing thesis, but I do want to bring this to sports because you are a sports speaker for the, for the semester, in a sense, in a sports <laughs> match So like the past 20 years, can we say this is a shift in power? And you and I can both allude to this. You know, the, the power has often been controlled by, let's say, innovators and capital Control, people controlling the capital, right? capital providers. Now we've seen the last couple of years, let's say tech developers have made, have prominently joined those other two. Could you say the future is going to be more it's going to be tech first, the balance of power is there a shift in the sense when we're kind of creating this innovative economy, these new emerging companies, would it be techs? techies first, kind of dictating terms, innovators? Uh, and and then capital providers are a, a kind of a third, a very important third. But can you see that shift? I'm seeing that in my world, and I want you to just kind of weigh in on that.
1: I, look, I I think software is eating the world, no doubt, and they are, they they now say AI will eat software, right? So we'll 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 see. I think we're we're still a little ways away, but certainly what machine learning and AI has been able to do uh, in replacing um, even even the need for certain humans to write code is unbelievable. Uh, if you see that there's this you know supercomputer uh, called GP two right, it's it's uh, you can you can go out on the internet and find examples of what that AI is able to do, but it's mind boggling. You can feed it a command like, "Hey, write me a, a line of code that can or, or a, a routine that can do X," and it can actually write the code for you. So you can like literally just give it natural language uh, English suggestions on things that it needs to do, and it can go and do it. So certainly, I I do think tech continues to be at the forefront of everything. But at the same time, I would just say that everything in this world is cyclical. It always has been and always will be. And I think where we are right now in the cycle is one in which there's so much capital in the markets that money has become a commodity. And so when money becomes a commodity, you know what, what what that really means is there's a lot of people who want to do a lot of deals in venture. They have they don't have the expertise to do it, but they have the capital sitting on the sidelines to do it. And so what that now means is as a founder, as a techie, as somebody who has an idea that wants to go and raise capital, you have so many options that if you're not optimizing for taking the smartest money and you're just optimizing to take money you know, you're going to go get that money from some guy who's not the smartest person, but is willing to pay a price that makes no sense. So now a guy like me that has been doing this professionally for five years, knowing that I could lose that deal to somebody who does not care about valuation. Mm -hmm. If I really want to do a deal, it means that I have to go to the founder and go, listen, man, tell me the number at which you will get this deal done with me right now. And you're not going to go shop it. I've had to say those words to founders. You know, 18 months ago, founders would be asking us for capital. We would talk about it for a couple of weeks. We'd come back to them with a term sheet. And most often than not, they would be like, oh, thanks for the term sheet. Great. How do we, how quickly can we sign? Today, I meet a founder. If I think we want to do a deal, I have to, we literally give them a term sheet the same day. There's no time to even do due diligence. You know, we're giving that founder a term sheet. And sometimes the founder, you know, she or him are just going, well, there's no, I, I don't need to sign this today. Like yeah. I had a founder take two weeks to sign a term sheet and there was no reason for him to even take the two weeks, but he just, you know, whether he was shopping it, what he was deciding on his, and I don't know, but we're sitting there on pins and needles going, man, we overpaid for this deal by at least 50% yeah. just to make sure that we would win it. And he still took two weeks to sign it. Thank God he finally signed it. Um, But now, you know, I send that deal to another great fund and I say, hey, do you guys wanna co-invest with us? And they look at the deal and they're like, hey man, like we really like the deal, we like the founder. Unfortunately, the valuation just doesn't make any sense for us so we're Mm -hmm. gonna have to pass on it, right? So, you know, unfortunately, anybody who's coming into market right now, for the most part is able to raise money at a significantly higher valuation than they ever have been able to in the past. And the downside of that is one, You may price out a lot of great VCs who wanna do that deal, but they go, yeah, "Yeah, I'm not gonna do it at this price. But secondly, you're setting yourself up for a very difficult fundraise six months or 12 months from now, where if you haven't been able to grow into that last round valuation, you're gonna end up doing a flat round or struggle to raise money or do a down round, and then everyone suffers, right? And those are the things that early founders don't realize. So I have founders that have done this before that are more realistic, and they say, "Listen, I know I could raise money at 100 right now, but let me raise money at 40, just so that I'm setting myself up for a better next round." But the young guys, the ones who've never done this before, they're looking around, going, "Man, this this VC is offering me a term sheet at that. That family office is offering me money at this. So why am I taking your money at 30 or 40 when I can get 80 or 90?" Um, and you know, it, going back to some of those deals that that we did in Fund One if we hadn't gotten in on the athletic at six and instead we had had to pay today's prices, which would have probably been 20 to 30, basically our, our returns would have been, you know, call it maybe 50% to 70% of what they ended up being, which means instead of returning our entire fund, we would have ended up returning two thirds of our fund and we wouldn't even be in the carry right now. Right? So like I, you don't realize the ramifications of devaluations of today until seven years out when your fund is becoming hard, is getting harnessed and you're returning capital to investors. And all of a sudden what should have been a three X fund is now going to end up being a one and a half times fund. Yeah. You're not that, you're not looking all that great all of a sudden. Right? And right. so that's what, that's what keeps me up at night right now is that the valuations have gotten so crazy that I don't know that the M and A activity in the public markets are going to keep up with those valuations five years from now where okay, if if I paid three times the price today, as long as it goes public for three times the price, it would have. That's fine by me. But I don't know that that's going to be the case. Um, and if it's not, we're going to be in a world of trouble come five years from
0: now. You hit three good points there. So a okay, you're seeing some crazy stuff. So you know, pre seed, pre product, let's say with a billion dollar valuation, that's BS, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's a mimification of what we're actually talking about. But like you would see pre product, some people getting these crazy valuations because there's just money flooding in the capital markets. There is some tightening in the capital markets we've discussed as a class, but venture money that was raised has two to four years to deploy that first chunk of money, yep. as we've discussed. So that's going to penetrate for the next year, or two, three, there's going to be some lag, let's call it. And, and then, but then what Voss is alluding to is then when they have to go raise a subsequent round after they've, when they want to just go blitz scale and scale, right? Uh, then they're going to be raising another round. Money terms might look different at that point, and it might just be cumbersome and it's just not... so. I like that. So then the second point that you mentioned is smart money versus just money. So smart money would be like, let's say, I I know you've you've, you've evolved from the sports tech, but let's say if I wanted to come with a healthcare company, you have money in your fund. Healthcare company may not be the best suited with your relationships, your distribution channels, whatever it is that you can bring to the table. So smart money would be me bringing something that's in the sports. Sorry, man, I keep pigeonholing you. I don't mean to, but like sports entertainment type of stuff, you know, in that space. Go to Voss, You go to like, in, you know, we, I've talked about what I do. Don't come to me with healthcare companies. Go to my wife. She, she knows that space better than I do. She's in healthcare. I'm not. So that, that's the smart money versus our relationships lie there, right? Your relationships, your distribution channels, how to get something to scale quickly because you can get the right people in place. That's what you mean by smart money. You want to lead up, uh, lead, take, take that a little bit further. The smart yeah. I
1: mean, look, look smart, smart money is either, as you said, you, you either have domain expertise, but even if you don't have domain expertise, mean, if you're a generalist VC, right? Like you have a certain infrastructure around you as a VC that, that can help a company. You can sit on the board, even if you don't have specific industry knowledge, like you have knowledge on how to build a company, how to hire a team, how to recruit, how to, how to do the things the right way that you need to do to be somewhat successful in any sphere of human activity in, as it relates to business. Dumb money would be, you know, you're going to some guy that has run, you know, that, that made a ton of money on real, in real estate and he wants to be a venture investor now and the guy is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and you're like, hey, Joe, you know, would you like to invest a million dollars in my company? And Joe's got a lot of money, but he doesn't know the first thing about running any sort of a tech business. Yeah. And he says, here's a million dollars. But the problem is the smart money, whether or not we're domain experts, us as VCs, as institutional VCs who do this for a living are now competing against people who don't do this for a living. And I don't call those people dumb. Joe, who made hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate is not dumb. He's definitely a smart guy. But he doesn't know the first thing about how to run a tech company and how to, how to evaluate companies, how to put valuations on things, how to create a stock option grant pool, how to make sure founders have vesting schedules. Like none of those things are in his realm and I don't blame him because he doesn't do this for a living. Right. Right. And so now all of a sudden I'm having to compete against that guy, which means I just have to pay more and be more aggressive with the company to make sure that they take my money over Joe's money. Mm -hmm. And, and that's causing me to spend more money. I have to write a bigger check at a higher valuation just to get my same ownership as I would have gotten a year ago. You know, I'd say a pre-seed deal a year and a half ago would have probably been at like a five million dollar valuation. Today, we've done pre-seed deals up to eighty, but that's certainly an outlier. But I'd say the average pre-seed deal is probably happening in the twelve to fifteen million dollar range, as opposed to what would have been five. The average seed deal is now happening around 25 for a good company versus what would have been 10. Yeah. And the average C- Series A, which would have been a 5 to $7 million round at a 40 to $50 million valuation is now $20 million at $100 million valuation. And it right? makes
0: you So, harder we, for that follow-on investment, right? If you started- So that, much harder. I, yeah, so, so I So much harder. One other observation I've seen is there are folks like, you know, we've, I would share, I've shared things with you. I don't know if you remember, like, and you, you said, Hey, this is, this makes sense. It doesn't make sense. I shared some sports centric deal. Like was like five, six years ago. And, uh, and then I, and then you came in, you particularly like some of our showcases that we've been a part of. Uh, I'm seeing now. Folks are becoming more generalists. There's a lot, a flood of people, so it's smart and non-smart money. Let's put it that way. Um, and, and then, because there's a flood of capital, so people are everyone thinks they're a VC now, right? Everyone's jumping in. Hey, I'm going to invest in this, and there's going to be a flood of bad investments, right? It's just going to be, it's going to follow the regular metrics. Let's say yep. it's just bigger numbers, <laughs> but the same ratios. I'm assuming people are becoming more generalist as well. There's, you know, the specialist isn't going away, but right now for a short period, it feels like, Hey, we have so much capital, let's deploy it. The kind of industry agnostic. Cause they don't really understand the game that well potentially. Um, and they're also sharing deals quite like th- through different platforms. So like before I would share, I've shared something with you. i shared it with some friends and uh, other friends in the space, but then and now people are just freely on WhatsApp, putting a deal. Hey, what do you think about this? And I'm seeing that. Right. And it's just, it's, it's insane. Are you, you're seeing a lot of that as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, we look. We we see everything in the space. I, I see probably five thousand deals a year, and I have to pick, call it seven to ten of them. And seven to ten is a lot. It used to be we would pick four or five of them. Now we're having to do seven to ten of them because the rate, the pace at which we're having to do deals has increased. We don't have as much time to think about deals to do diligence. Um, as a result, you know, we're we're and we're also having to go earlier. We can't do Series A deals anymore because the price is so high that I now have to do pre-seed deals, which we, we never thought we would do. Now, if you're doing pre-seed deals, they're so risky that you have to place far more bets into pre-seed deals because you know that 90% of them are definitely gonna fail, yeah. right? If, if, if the Series A uh, success rate was gonna be 30%, the Series pre-seed success rate is probably 10%, right? So now I gotta do three times more deals to, to have the same outcome, um, and, and as a result, a lot of companies are going to get funded, and a lot of companies that should not have ever gotten funded are going to get funded, and, right. and eventually, all these guys who think that they're VCs that have deployed money into bad deals, you know, five years from now, when they all end up with zeros, they're going to go, oh, I hate venture capital. I don't want to do this anymore, right? And one of two things could happen. They may decide they still want exposure to the space, and they'll just become LPs in funds, or they may throw their hands up and say, all together, I don't like venture anymore because I had a bad experience. Now, dude, you had a bad experience because you tried to be a VC yourself when it wasn't your business. But we've seen that happen. We 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 see, like I said, everything's tickling. I think every family office at certain point thinks to themselves, we can do venture and we don't need to go pay two and 20 to a fund. Let's just do venture ourselves. And some of them may be successful, but I bet you the bulk of them end up with subpar returns and then at the end of that five to 10-year period, either as a family office, they decide we don't like the venture category at all, we think it's bad, or they, they have their come to Jesus moment and they go, let's just give our money to the professionals. It's fine that we have to pay two and 20 in fees and, and carry, but let the professionals do what they need to do. And
0: let's, let's jump into Athletic and StockX. You, you pull out of any conversation that you can't partake in here. Uh, you, you said you're, you're the first checks into both of those companies, Correct. Yeah. Okay. Athletic, as you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as we discussed, I think two, three weeks ago in our publishing uh, episode uh, session, I think New York Times just purchased them for five hundred mil, five fifty. Those straight cash too, which is kind of dope, right? Which you kind of want want New York Times stock, right? (laughs) I'm just, yeah. Okay. I I said enough in class. Um, This is being recorded. I'm kidding. No, you don't want New York Times cash. New York Times we know is probably just trying to aggregate eyeballs so they can be an upsell to some other group at some point because they can't sustain this model forever. You can't just keep acquiring your relevance because they don't have that kind of capital. Let's just be honest, right? So they've acquired these great companies. You need some other major player to come and say, this could be a great value add for our ecosystem, like maybe an Apple TV or Apple, I'm sorry, or some other play. Um, we don't need to ch- jump on that conversation, but that's my angle on it. Athletic, you were the first check-in. Okay, let's. that's smart money. I know you do your due diligence and all that. Second part of my question I want you to answer first, how many folks have you seen, and I've done this myself. Okay. If I'm, not, if I'm a follow-on investor in a company, I know smart money led the first check and got involved. How many of those secondary, third, third checks, fourth checks are not doing the due diligence you see? Because they, hey, Vasu led this round. I, I just invested in something that you know, Sequoia got in. I'm assuming they did their due diligence. Why, do, why should I spend my 5K? <laughs> to do my, right? How often do you see that happening in some of the deals you're getting into?
1: Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what a, f- a firm does or does not do on their end. So I I can't really speak to whether or not. You yeah, things. you hear you know. things though, man, come on. <laughs> no, I, I I have no idea what their internal processes are. But what I, what I would say is that signaling is very real adventure, right? So that, that's another reason why you don't take dumb money and you should take smart money or at least name brand money if you can as a founder because it just makes a re- the rest of your round come together much faster. And that doesn't mean that the, the other firm is not gonna do any diligence. They're just gonna blindly write a check. I, 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 ho- I pray that we have such power that if Quartzsite if is in a deal that other firms are blindly throwing money behind us, that would be an unbelievable uh, stamp of approval for us. I, I highly doubt that that's the case, but I do think that the signaling is real that if Quartzsite is doing a deal within the sports realm, within the fitness realm, hopefully increasingly within the gaming and collectibles realms, that other blue chip vcs will go hey those guys are domain experts they look at everything in this space if they're doing this deal we should take this deal seriously let's dig in on it and maybe we should co-invest with them that's that that definitely uh is what we all strive for as vcs is to have that brand recognition and that domain expertise that others want to do deals with you and more importantly we'll bring deals to you right Uh, most of our deals are not done just because we find the company it's because another VC finds the deal and they bring it to us and they say, hey, Basu, I know you know everything about collectibles. Why don't you take a look at this? And if you like it, I'll do it with you. And that happens more often than you would imagine. And there's been times when a a blue chip VC has brought me a deal in my domain. I've looked at it. I've said, hey, I love this deal. I want to do it. I've gone back to the founder and been like, hey, I'd I'd like to come in for a check. And I've gotten an allocation and the original VC who made the intro for me hasn't been able to get into the round because it ended up being so oversubscribed and I feel terrible about it. So I'm going back, I'm going, listen, man, I'm really sorry. Like I told the guy, you made the intro, you should definitely get an allocation. And, you know, in every case, the VC has been like, look, man, I understand the founder, you know, he wanted you more than he wanted me. And because you're a domain expert. Um, so I, I, I do think that it helps to do deals when somebody that is a name brand or is a domain expert is leading a particular round. It just makes the decision a lot easier for another fund to come in. But I don't think that it keeps them from doing any diligence. I, I if somebody's blindly writing checks without doing diligence, they shouldn't be in venture. Like they should they, they shouldn't be running a fund.